0: He leaves the temple and then says about the temple what he is about to say. And the real significance of that is that the lesser temple is giving way to the greater temple. The thing that was a shadow of the thing to come gives way to the thing that has come, the greater temple, who is Jesus himself. And so Jesus left the temple and was going away, and when his disciples came, to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age?" And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Sorry, but hallelujah. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are coming again. Help us. Help us now in the midst of these days to have our eyes fixed upon that, to keep our eyes on the ball with respect to mission and not be distressed or disturbed by the things we see happening around us. Grant us your spirit as we look at your word that our hearts might be encouraged. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, here's the reason um, that we're doing this this morning. I had an email from a friend this last week. Um, and it was uh, it was a funny kind of an email. Not It wasn't a joke email. It wasn't one of those humorous emails. But it was funny in the sense that it was odd. And I found myself, while on the one hand sort of understanding what's going on with this guy, I found myself thinking, well, gee, that's strange. And here's the email. It went something like this. Don't you just love Sarah Palin? And then he said this. She's probably not going to be enough. We're probably going to lose. We're going to lose. That's what I found funny. That's what I found odd. That's what I I couldn't bite my tongue about. I had to respond and say simply, Who is us? Who's us? Who's going to lose? Who's going to lose? Now, I want to be fair. And I want to understand what's going on with my friend and understand that what's going on with my friend is probably going on with a lot of us in this room and a lot of us across this country. We're in the midst of – and I mean, I'll leave it to the experts to, to, to make the statements and offer the commentary and all of that, but it appears that we're in the midst of the worst economic meltdown since 1987 – and maybe since 1929. We're about three weeks and two days away from an election, and the outcome of the election is a big deal. We're in the midst of all kinds of international tensions. There's an ongoing war in Iraq. There's an ongoing war in Afghanistan. Hugo Chavez is in control. In South America, the Russians are pressuring or invading former Soviet satellite nations. Natural disasters and catastrophes are everywhere. Hurricanes, famines, earthquakes. What are we to make of all of this? Now, you know where I'm going, don't you? You've heard it. I hear it. I hear it repeatedly. It must be that the gig is up. It must be... That Jesus is coming back soon, because all of these things are harbingers of the end. May I be so bold and so brazen as to say, not, not. I know that's what people are thinking. I know that perhaps that's many, what many of you are thinking. But that, if you if you if you'll look closely at Matthew 24, that isn't what Jesus said. It's not what Jesus said. I think Matthew 24 is a great help to us in the midst of our thinking about these things. And I do believe if we look carefully at what Jesus says, and if we believe what our Lord says, paying more attention to him than to reports and pundits and political analysis, I think we will find a deep and sustaining encouragement in what Jesus says here. Let me give you three words to hang this passage on. And I'm going to, as I always do, but this time it's premeditated, I'm going to land on the first one for the bulk of the time because you'll see that numbers two and three are clear implications of number one. Okay? Three words, realism, responsibility, and reason. Realism about the nature of history. Realism about the nature of history. Responsibility to mission in the midst of history. And a reason for hope as we're faithful to our responsibility in the midst of a realistic view of history. So being realistic about history. Look again at verses 1 through 3 and, and catch what's going on here. Now, again, maybe, maybe this is a boring review for a lot of you, but I don't, I'm not sure that that's the case. Uh, I, I think we need to hear more clearly what Jesus is saying regarding history. The thing that's under discussion in these first three verses, and by the way, it's fascinating simply fascinating to go back to chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel and see the whole of of this part of Matthew's gospel as a kind of a self-contained section and to see the progression from chapter 21, which records the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and how after he enters the city of Jerusalem, he then takes on the representatives of institutional religion in Israel. He takes on the Sadducees and then he takes on the Pharisees and after he's taken on the Pharisees, then he takes on this visible symbol of institutional religion in the midst of Israel, which is this glorious temple of Herod. Go back and read it. It's fascinating. He comes as the king and frankly he takes on everything that stands in opposition to him as king. It's remarkable. So, We're in that kind of a context. But the thing that is under discussion immediately here is the end of the age. That's in verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple, was going away when his disciples uh, came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So you see he's taking aim at this visible brick-and-mortar, visible, tangible evidence of institutional religion in the midst of Israel. And after he's done that, they walk across the Kidron Valley, or the the, um, valley that is east of uh, the Holy City, and go up into the Mount of Olives. And there, the disciples come to Jesus and ask him this question. Okay? He sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? That's the thing that's under discussion here. The close of the age. The sign of your coming. And for those of you who are interested in these kinds of things, in the original... There's a definite article that governs both the sign of your coming and the end of the age. One definite article related to the two so that the two are like twin sides of the same coin or opposite sides of the same coin. Okay? The sign of your coming will be the thing that inaugurates, completes, brings to completion the end of the age. They're one and the same. They're not two different things. Okay? Definite article that governs both. That's your grammar lesson for the morning. That's what's under discussion here. Now, here's the critical thing to understand in order to understand Jesus' response to the disciples' question. The end of the temple. The end of the temple. Jesus has just talked about the destruction of the temple. The end of the temple in the minds of the disciples would mean the end of history as they knew it. That's what the end of the temple would mean. If the temple is gone, if the temple is destroyed, that means that history as we know it has come to a conclusion and there's something radically different, radically transformational that results from that event. They had a very simple view of history. There was this age and there was the age to come. There was the old age and the new age. There was the age of this world and these nations. And then there was the age of the Messiah, the messianic age the fulfillment of all of the promises made, the restoration of paradise, the restoration of God's shalom and peace that would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. A very simple view of history. Old age, new age. This age and the age to come. And if the temple is destroyed, the disciples simply cannot conceive. They simply cannot conceive of history continuing as it had before the destruction of the temple. Something radically different was going to have to happen. A radical change was going to result. The end of the temple could only mean that the old age was over and the new age was begun. This is so deeply ingrained In the minds of the disciples, so deeply woven into the fabric of their understanding and their consciousness, that they're still asking about it in Acts chapter 1. They're still asking about it. The risen Christ in the midst of his disciples, the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? acts chapter 1 verse 6 see they're still asking about it is it is it at this time now is it so basically it's this okay jesus you died we didn't expect that messiahs don't die right they don't die messiahs don't die messiahs come as kings Messiahs don't allow themselves to be brutalized by an occupying force by the Romans. When Messiahs come, they brandish the saber and they lop off the heads of the Romans. Now that didn't happen. Okay, we understand. You died. You were entombed. But, But now, you see, you're raised. You're raised. You're alive. You're raised to newness of life. You're the same Jesus that we ate with before. We ate with you on the beach. Remember that at the end of John's Gospel? They had fish for breakfast, just like they do in Japan. You're alive. We understand it. We've put our hands in the nail prints of your hands. We've put our hands in the wound in the side of your flesh. So now Jesus, having died, having been raised... Clearly of the different sort from what we're accustomed to, you're able to appear and disappear whenever you want. You're able to seem to be in two different places at the same time. Right? That's the kind of stuff that the disciples are trying to sort out in their own heads. So, you're dead, you're alive, you're doing all these bizarre things. Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, it's so deeply ingrained in the thinking of the disciples, so deeply woven into the fabric of their existence that they, they cannot comprehend how life can continue if the Messiah has come, if the Messiah has inaugurated his rule and reign, life simply cannot be the same anymore. can't be. And they're expecting... We talked about this when we looked at Jonah. You remember a month or so ago? Jonah who was supposed to go to Gentiles, preach the gospel to Gentiles, preach repentance to the Gentiles, summon them to confess their sins, turn from their sins. What is Jonah? Jonah Jonah is doing what the disciples eventually were going to do. He couldn't imagine doing it. The disciples can't imagine it. The disciples can't imagine How the king could come, the Messiah could inaugurate his reign, and he not brandish the saber and lop off the heads of the enemies. They're struggling to understand this. They want the king to assert his rule and reign fully, completely, entirely. They want the shalom of god they want the restoration of all things their hearts long for an end for an end to political cronyism their hearts long for an end to injustice their hearts long for an end to economic meltdowns their hearts long for an end to international tensions their hearts long for the same things your hearts long for for a restoration of paradise and peace and blessedness. I'm reading this book. I told you about this book last week, I think, or two weeks ago. It's by Cornelius Plantinga. It's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. You've got to get this book. I read most of it ten years ago, and like most things I read ten years ago, I forgot what I read. Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Plantinga argues, and these are my words, not his, but Plantinga argues basically, and I think I said this last week, but just by way of reminder, argues that sin, in effect, is an assault upon the shalom of God. Sin is an assault upon the shalom of God. Wherever you find it, whatever it looks like, what it represents is a decreation, a devolution, a Devaluing of things that are good and right and blessed. The shalom of God is life pulsating with life and blessing and fullness and sin, wherever you find it, makes an assault upon that shalom of God. And Plantinga tries to imagine what the world would look like using language and categories that we can understand if the shalom of God were to be restored. Listen to this. It's so good. What would the world look like if this shalom of God were to abide? What would be the broad outlines and main ingredients of a transformed world? It would include, for instance, strong marriages and secure children. Nations and races in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, important, complementary. In the process of making decisions, I love this. It's a little unsettling, but listen. In the process of making decisions, men would defer to women and women to men until a crisis arose. And then with good humor all around, the person most naturally competent in the area of crisis would resolve it to the satisfaction and pleasure of both. That's a great way for marriages to work, by the way. Government officials would still take office, after all, somebody has to decide which streets are cleaned on Tuesday and which are cleaned on Wednesday. But to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Public telephone books would be left intact. Highway You can tell this was written 10 years ago, right? When we still had phone booths with phone books in them before cell phones. Highway overpasses would be free of graffiti. Tow truck drivers and erring motorists would be serene on intercity streets. Business associates would rejoice in one another's promotions. And middling Harvard students would respect the Phi Beta Kappas from the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople <laughs> and would seek to learn from them. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. All around the world, people would stimulate and encourage one another's virtues. Newspapers would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people on their porches would read and savor these stories and call out to each other about them. Hey! Did you hear about so-and-so and and what so-and-so did in the service of so-and-so to advance such-and-such? And above all, in the visions of Christians, God would preside in the unspeakable beauty for which human beings long and in the mystery of holiness that draws human worship like a magnet." And each human being would reflect and color the light of God's presence out of the inimitable resources of his or her own character and essence. Human communities would present their ethnic and regional specialties to other communities in the name of God and in the glad recognition that God, too, is a radiant and hospitable community of three persons. In their own accents, communities would express praise, Courtesies and deferences that when, when massed together would keep building like waves of a passion that is never spent. What have we lost? And what is it that the disciples longed for? That's what they longed for on a grand, global, cosmic scale. Personalize it. I told you a few weeks ago that my favorite modern poet, my favorite songwriter is Mary Chapin Carpenter. I think I can read this without weeping, but I'm not sure. She wrote a song called Jubilee. I can tell by the way you're walking that you don't want company. I'll let you alone and I'll let you walk on. And in your own good time... You'll be back where the sun can find you, under the wise wishing tree. And with all of them made, we'll lie under the shade and call it a jubilee. And I can tell by the way you're talking that the past isn't letting you go. But there's only so long you can take it all on, and then the wrong's got to be on its own. And when you're ready to leave it behind you, you'll look back, and all that you'll see is the wreckage and rust that you left in the dust on your way to the Jubilee. And I can tell by the way you're listening that you're still expecting to hear your name being called like a summons to all who have failed to account for their doubts and their fears. They can't add up to much without you. And so if it were just up to me, I'd take hold of your hand, saying, come, hear the band, play your song at the Jubilee. And I can tell by the way you're searching for something you can't even name, that you haven't been able to come to the table simply glad that you came. But when you feel like this, try to imagine that we're all like frail boats on the sea just scanning the night for that great guiding light announcing the jubilee. And I can tell by the way you're standing with your eyes filling with tears that it's habit alone that keeps you turning for home even though your home is right here where the people who love you are gathered under the wise wishing tree. May we all be considered then straight on delivered down to the jubilee Because the people who love you are waiting, and they'll wait just as long as need be. And when we look back and say, those were halcyon days, we're talking about jubilee. When was the last time you heard a poet use the word halcyon? I mean a modern American rock and roll songwriting poet. You know what halcyon means? It refers to peace and tranquility and blessedness and deep security and contentment. Somehow that song is about the gospel and about the longings of the human heart for jubilee. And what is jubilee? It's the 50th year. It's the year after the seven groupings of seven. After the 49 years when the slaves are released. When everybody gets to go back to his property, to his land, to his home. To experience the shalom of God. That's what the disciples long for. That's what you long for. And that's what makes it so hard, so hard to look at this economy, to look at duplicitous politicians, to look at an electoral process that seems broken, to look at the world that seems to be deteriorating and falling apart. Because this is the only home we've got, right? Right? Halcyon days. Shalom. It's what we long for. It's what you long for. It's what the disciples longed for. And it's what the disciples had hoped that Jesus would bring the end of the old and the full implementation and realization of the new. But look at what he says in answer to their question. See that nobody leads you astray see that no one leads you astray or as the niv has it watch out watch out don't be led astray i know look this is so i i wasn't there you weren't there the scriptures don't record the tone of voice the scriptures don't record expressions on faces i'm just going to take a guess it's just a guess but I'm just going to take a guess that there was extraordinary tenderness in the voice of Jesus and etched on the face of Jesus. Don't be led astray. Watch out. And then for the next few verses, Jesus describes what is going to be their experience, what is going to characterize the life of the disciples and what will characterize the whole of human history from his ascension until his return when he finally delivers the thing that in the depths of my heart and in the depths of your heart you long for. Jubilee. Shalom. And here are the things, and, and I, I'm only guessing But I have to believe that in the tone of his voice and etched onto his face was deep emotion and deep tenderness for his disciples. Verse 5, what's going to happen? False messiahs will come who will deceive. Verse 6, don't be alarmed. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. It's very interesting in verse seven, that the verb in the original is in the passive voice. The better way to render it is simply, nation will be raised up against nation, kingdom will be raised up against kingdom, which suggests, doesn't it, that that nations and kingdoms don't act at their own initiative but that nations and kingdoms are moved to do and be what they are and what they do by an invisible hand which raises them up to accomplish his purposes. But what will characterize those nations being raised up and those kingdoms being raised against one another is conflict, tensions, warfares. And the creation, the rest of verse 7, is still broken. The creation labors under the burden of this curse, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And look at verse 8 and what Jesus says. These things are just the beginnings of the birth pangs. And then verses 9 through 12, he talks about persecution and people growing cold and falling away. And brothers and sisters, these are the things that characterize not the end of history, but the whole of human history from the time of the disciples right down to the present. And Jesus describes them as birth pangs. There are a few of you in this room who understand that language. What do birth pangs tell you? Birth pangs tell you that there has been a conception And as a result of that conception, there is gestation and there is growth and then there's a switch that gets flipped at the appropriate time and the thing that has been conceived and the thing that has grown is now ready to be delivered. Birth pangs indicate that a delivery is going to happen, but you don't know exactly when. And so you have to wait and you have to endure and you have to suffer through the birth pangs until the appointed time when the thing that has been conceived and the thing that has undergone gestation and growth and has come to maturity is finally delivered. Folks, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the church in the mind of Jesus seems to be conceived. Seems to be conceived in the imagery of an unborn child. Alive, having been conceived, having matured through this period of gestation. You can think about that as the whole Old Testament. And then when Jesus the King comes and inaugurates his rule and reign, what happens when he inaugurates his rule and reign is the beginning of delivery. The onset of delivery. With birth pangs that characterize the whole of the period between the onset of labor and the end of labor, which is the delivery of the perfected, complete, entire, and glorious, restored kingdom of God, not just the people, the whole cosmos. Being renewed, restored to reflect the shalom of God and the jubilee that we all long for. We're in labor, folks. We're in labor. And Jesus says two things He says, Watch out, be careful, and don't be surprised. This is what is going to characterize life from the days of the disciples. Down to the end of history, when what was inaugurated by the coming, the birth, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and rule and reign of Jesus is brought to completion in the new heaven and the new earth, populated by fully restored people who, at that time, finally get what they long for the Jubilee and the shalom of God. That's a realistic view of human history. And it isn't until verse 14 that you get some idea of what it is that might be the harbinger of the end. And what is that thing? Verse 14. If you want to look for something that will indicate that the end is near chronologically? It's the gospel of the kingdom being preached among all of the nations as a testimony to the nations. Somebody said to me last night, wow, we might be close. Do you know there are over a 100, maybe, by many estimates, over 130 million Christians, In China, 130 million and growing. You know what those Christians are praying for and what they would like for you to pray for? Those Christians in China are praying that God will raise up 1 million missionaries who will be sent from China specifically to nations that are robed, cloaked and imprisoned in the darkness of Islam because they know Westerners can't go there. That's what the Chinese are praying for. And if we were to see that in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, get your dancing shoes on because the party may be close. That's the harbinger, the gospel of the kingdom being proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to the nations. Jesus says, and then the end will come. This is a promo for supporting, even in these distressed economic times, this is a promo for not withdrawing support from missionaries and missionary agencies you currently support. Why? Because if you want the end to come, get them out there, keep them out there, encourage them in their work, proclaiming the gospel in the midst of all the nations as a testimony to the nations so that the end will come. There's a realistic view of history. And right here is a reminder of our responsibility with respect to mission. Our business is the nations, folks. That's what Jesus said to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Remember, Jesus was asked the question Is it now? Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You go look at it. Um, um, This is a rough paraphrase, but basically what Jesus says in verses 7 and 8 is, none of your business. That's the Father's business, your business. When you are endued with power from on high, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to empower you, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's your business. That's my business, brothers and sisters. That is our business together as a church. It's not our business to try to figure out when the end is coming. That's the Father's business. He'll take care of it. Our business is to be about our responsibilities in seeking to extend the gospel of the kingdom by proclamation to the whole world as a testimony to the nations. So there's a realistic view of history. This is what history is going to look like until Jesus comes again. There's our responsibility, a responsibility to mission. And then lastly, and just really one sentence, you have a reason to be hopeful. You have a reason to be hopeful because it is coming. I don't know when. I don't need to know. Neither do you. But it is coming. The end is The glorious jubilee, the shalom of God, is coming. So I wrote my friend back after he had responded to my two questions. Who is us and who are the losers? I wrote my friend back and said, forgive me. I don't think of myself first as a member of a political party, and I don't think of losing. The king has come. The kingdom is here. There is work to be done, and there is No losing. Let's pray together. Lord, encourage us with these things. These are hard times. But give us grace to keep our eyes fixed on the ball. The work that there is to be done. Trusting you that you will care for us just as you cared for the disciples. And, Lord, ready our hearts to come to this table and taste again the glories and wonders and blessings of the kingdom that you have inaugurated and of the forgiveness and freedom that belong to us as citizens in that kingdom. Help us, we pray. We ask it in your name. Amen.